TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I was channeling like the idea of being in New York City and to me, if for no one else, it was like, I'm here. I did this thing. A literary agent read it and wants to talk to me. It was one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had in my whole life. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, musician Susanna Hoffs talks about writing her first novel and about failed relationships. You start to lose your confidence. You think, will I ever connect with another human being? I've been reading and loving Architectural Digest for as long as I can remember. The magazine and the website are the first places I go for design inspiration. So when I found out that the editors of Architectural Digest just launched the AD Pro Directory, the ultimate resource for matching designers with prospective clients, I knew I had to tell you all about it. Now, for the first time ever, AD's extensive community of homeowners and design enthusiasts can easily find and hire their favorite design professionals. The directory is a list of AD-approved architects, interior designers, and outdoor specialists that anyone in need of design services can access for free by searching by profession and location. If you're a design expert who is looking to grow your business and want a chance to be featured in AD, apply now. If you're a client seeking best-in-class design services, you can browse AD's extensive list of design experts. Want to be introduced to the best of the best? Explore the AD Pro Directory at architecturaldigest.com forward slash design matters. 
rare, but there are voices in pop music that are just irresistible. And Susanna Hopps has one of them. In the 1980s, she co-founded the all-girl group The Bangles, whose hits included Walk Like an Egyptian, The Prince Penned, Manic Monday, and Eternal Flame. She's also had a long and illustrious solo career and a prolific collaboration with the singer-songwriter Matthew Sweet. And now, Susanna Hoffs has written a book. Not a memoir, as you might expect from a musician in the limelight for nearly four decades, but a novel. Titled, This Bird Has Flown, the book is about a female rock star who falls on hard times and then falls for a charismatic literature professor she meets on a plane. Susanna Hoffs, welcome to Design Matters. It's such a pleasure to be here. Susanna, is it true that you were bat mitzvahed at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem? Yes. My brother, my older brother, who's only a year older than me, had his bar mitzvah at the Wailing Wall very quick, just reading one little stanza. And then we had a luncheon afterwards at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, and I did a little hamotzi prayer over the bread, and that was it. Boom, boom. (laughs) Bat mitzvah. Bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah all on the same day. Um, You grew up in Los Angeles and your mother, Tamar Simon, was initially a painter, then a filmmaker, and your dad was a psychoanalyst. What was it like to grow up with a live-in therapist? It was fantastic. I love this question. I really feel like my journey as an artist has been very much informed by my upbringing and in particular the fact that I had a psychoanalyst father, also having an artist mother. I think that it informed the fact that I chose to, you know, make my life's work in art, in all, in many forms of it. And obviously as a musician, but also now having written a novel, but also going to UC Berkeley where I was an art major. Having started as a drama dance major, I I pivoted to art because in a way, art encompassed everything that I was interested in. You've written about how you grew up with a tantalizing library of paperback novels. Oh, yeah. Included books by John Updike to Gustave Flaubert, the Bronte sisters, Jane Austen, F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Baldwin, Erica Jung. Yeah. Now, is it is it true that you now have all of those dog-eared paperbacks you read in your own library now? I do. My mother was and, and is an avid reader, and I have all of these sort of tattered paperbacks and they are so precious to me. And I read a lot of these. I mean, there was an open vibe in the household. So some of these books I read, you know, as a teen and ended up with the paperbacks in my library, but they still funnily resonate in the stuff that I'm making now. It's fun to have made it (laughs) this far. I'm 64 this year. And for some reason, Maybe because of the Beatles song, when I'm 64, I'm more aware, I'm reflecting a lot on the journey from then till now, because uh, both of my brothers are living nearby me now after not living close by. We're all sharing our L.A. stories and our childhood. So a lot of this stuff is resonating in a particular way. Yeah, I totally understand the reflection mode. I'm going to be 62 this year, so I'm always thinking about 
what's left. One of the questions that I know that you asked yourself uh, as you were thinking about writing your book, if not now, when? That's a con- that's on, on repeat in my brain every oh, yeah. single day. Oh, yeah. You said that you fell in love with music as a child. As a baby, your mom was always playing the radio, and she loved the Beatles and Burt Backrack. And I believe your uncle put a guitar in your hands yeah. when you were six or seven. Yeah. Were you even big enough to hold it? Practically. There's a picture of me from, I think, when I was just seven or I just turned eight, where there's this big guitar in my lap, and I'm wearing a dress with a little Peter Pan collar and um, sitting on the porch outside. It, yeah, I mean, I it, the, the guitars were all gigantic. Now they make smaller guitars, but back then I think my uncle just... He had so many instruments lying around that he just gave me one that he didn't need to keep for himself. But I learned, I think the same, this this is also an old story that I'm reflecting on now that I just learned by doing. I, I feel embarrassed to say that I don't read music. I can't read a musical chart. I mean, I can look at it and see when a note's higher and note's lower, but I'm not schooled in it. And I never really took a writing course either But for me, it's all about just throwing myself in, fueled by a passion. And yeah, it just crosses all genres. So, but being self-taught, you know, I, at this point, I just accept that I am that. (laughs) I'm kind of, I don't know if I can learn new tricks. And I never really thought I'd get to this moment, although I, in some way I did, but it's just been a really fascinating journey to get to this precise moment with the novel. I read that you wrote your first song at eight years old. Yeah. And it was titled The Rock Island Line. Yeah. You described it as vintagey folk style. And I was wondering if this, this was influenced by your love of the band The Kingston Trio, which was also a band that I loved at the same time. That's so cool. It was very much influenced by The Kingston Trio. Yeah, I love that sound. It's just that the organic sound of of acoustic guitars and voices. You were also involved in musical theater and plays all through middle and high school. And you said that theater was almost like your major in high school. Yeah. At that point, were you thinking that you wanted to be a professional actress? Um, I considered it growing up in a household where movies were king and that we it was like a big part of the family dynamic to go see movies in Westwood. And I saw so many movies like Shampoo when it came out, The Exorcist when it came out. We would take the bus, my brothers and I too, or we would go with our parents. But it was always hard for me to get cast in in, in the juicier roles in high school because I was very small. <laughs> I was like this, like petite and People always thought that I was younger than I was, which was horrifying in adolescence. Like it was practically a tragedy (laughs) that like (laughs) I know when really I felt like outside the cool people group. I didn't think anyone would ever cast me any in anything. So early on, I decided to just keep exploring the arts and see what happened. And when I was in college and the Patti Smith group played the Winterland Ballroom and the Sex Pistols played there too. And I was at both of those shows. It was sort of an epiphany for me that starting a band in that kind of zeitgeist of the band as the art project, you know, and really having like a graphic sensibility, a musical sensibility, 
a very clear mission statement, if you will, I, I started to think about that. Around that time, I was dating David Roback, who ended up going on to form the band Mazzy Star. But some of what we were doing, and we were living together at a certain period during the four years I was at college, to really kind of create a sound that when I did advertise myself upon graduation, coming home to L.A., and it was a circuitous path. I was leaving flyers that I drew and designed myself in record stores and at the Whiskey A Go-Go when the Go-Go's were playing there. That led me also to put an ad in the recycler, a throwaway paper where you could buy a car or a rug or an old sofa. And it led me to the sisters, Vicki and Debbie Peterson, that we met on a night, and I want to say January of 81, in the garage where I was living, because people live in a garage. (laughs) Kids who come back from college and haven't quite figured out how to afford an apartment, we just lived in the garage and renovated it. So the Petersons came over. We played the song White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, which they taught me, and I learned it. It was only two chords. It sounded so much more sophisticated than two chords, but that's what it was. And My mom was listening in from the house. We had a house guest from New York and they were like, you guys sound like a band. And we were. That's the night we met. We never looked back. We were a band from this blind date that we had with each other in the garage. I love the fact that you handmade a flyer. And Susanna, I came upon one in my research. It's a glorious flyer. It's blue. (laughs) Yeah. Eight and a half by 11. Kind of looks a little bit like a punk ransom note. Um, I want to try to describe it for our listeners. It had the headline girls in what looks like a very handwritten original font. Very sharp. Yeah, uh, yeah it was handwritten. Yeah. It, it states you were forming a boss all girls group to play rockabilly, psychedelic and surf music with a mercy beat. And you stated your influences were love, the go-go's, the last, Bo Brummel, the birds, blue caps, and then handwritten under those bands that were in a sort of font. It was the modern lovers. You also wrote underneath that must be nice in all caps <laughs> and ask people to call you weekdays after 530 and weekends. And you put your first stack of flyers, I believe, in a go-go show in the bathroom, as you mentioned, as, as at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Yeah. So I, I just have some questions about the flyer. I mean, yeah, actually, you know, before before the show listeners, Suzanne and I were talking about whether or not we were going to talk about design. And I didn't think we would very much. But now I'm actually going to ask a couple of questions about the design of this flyer. Yeah. Um. So so what made you decide to it's so interesting, this combination of handwritten type of typeset um, information and then the add-on of the modern lovers. Um, talk about even the whole notion of making a flyer to put in the bathrooms at a nightclub. I know. It was this DIY spirit. You know, I loved graphic design. I loved music. I loved art. And I was the flyer maker of all the early Bengals concerts. I have other ones that I haven't shared yet. But, you know, in some, I took a cutout. They were mostly collage because... I don't know how to use a computer. There were no computers anyway. Right. So I would just tape and glue and I would cut out things from magazines and handwrite stuff. Yeah, I I just this is a slightly off topic story, but a friend forwarded me a letter that I had typed to a guy who had a band in the South Bay area 
just me saying, this is my number. I've left a bottle of whiskey at your doorsteps. I had <laughs> tracked down this guy's home address where we're all living with our parents. We were kids. And he had saved this letter for 40 years. And it, it just stumbled upon it because my brother somehow got roped into this group online. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> that was a brazen thing to do, to, to track down this musician who I admired. But that's just how I approached everything. I didn't really think that hard about it. I was like this scrappy 17-year-old who was just determined. So the same thing, I have other flyers, and now I feel like I should put them up on my Instagram. They were all collages. I was just making art. It was how, it was how my mother... My mother was always doing that. And my grandmother before her, it was like a family tradition. I didn't even think twice about it. But it makes me so happy that you were charmed by that. Absolutely. So why an all-girls band? What made you decide at that point that that was the sound you wanted and that was the way you wanted to sort of introduce your music? It was a combination of things. One, that I had worked with David Roback in our pre-Massey Star kind of template of what we were doing. When that relationship became fraught, I came back to L.A. I was still very close with David because he was like a member of our family, having grown up in the neighborhood and being my brother's best friend all through childhood. But I thought maybe it would be less less complex (laughs) to um, work with other women in some way. I just got frustrated and I just I, I was so determined to make something happen, to meet people in L.A. that I could commune with and we had similar tastes. And so, you know, I think that I just started to advertise myself in all those ways, the flyers, the recycler magazine. Yeah. And it it was the right move because somehow it wasn't even, Vicky wasn't meant to answer the phone. I was calling the, the girl who had placed an ad like I had in the recycler. But, you know, the minute we played together, it was clear. Why look any further? It was like a blind date where you go, okay, this works. So that's how it was. Actually, what you said, which I loved, you said as soon as you met, it was weirdly instantaneously platonic love at first sight as if you ran off to Vegas and got married in an Elvis wedding chapel. Exactly. That's exact (laughs) quote. That's exactly sums it up. And that was 1981. You decided at the time to call yourself the Bangs. Why the Bangs? There had been an Esquire magazine in part that my mom had a subscription and there was a famous cover with Ed Sullivan. Um, And Ed Sullivan was so in our, uh, for the Petersons and me, very important because of that first Beatles. That's how we all found, found out about the Beatles. And it was Ed Sullivan wearing a Beatle wig. And within the pages of that Esquire magazine were a bunch of really interesting hairstyles. And one was sort of more of like a sort of bouffant kind of thing like this. And it said the haircut or the hairdo was called the supersonic bang or the supersonic bangs maybe or bang. The idea of the bangs both for our affection for that very 60s look with the bangs, like very Julie Christie in the movie Darling. You know, it was just so popular. And we were, it was the beginning of the 80s, but Vicky, Debbie, and I were just like obsessed with the fashion of the 60s. 
and the look and feel of movies and everything and the sounds. But then we soon thought, ah, supersonic bangs is a bit clumsy and long. And so we just shortened it. But then there was a New Jersey band, right when we were about to put out our first EP on a small indie label, we discovered that there was a band in New Jersey who was like claiming to sue us. So we had 48 hours to change the name of the band and it just became the Bangles. You you all, Vicki and Debbie Peterson and Michael Steele, um, you quickly became part of the Paisley underground scene. And unlike most other girl bands, then or now, you wrote much of your own material. You actually, you all played your own instruments. You For made sure. your own decisions about how to present yourself. I read that you didn't have anybody helping you. Everything you all wore was either from thrift stores or cobbled together from your own closets. And you described your style as a retro beatnik bohemian steeped in an obsession with 60s music and fashion. <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty accurate. That is accurate, I think. Yeah. And I was wondering how you would describe your style now. Oh, gosh, it's much different. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm i wearing what I now call, it was, I got this on sale during the thing, what I call my David Byrne sweater. I don't know if you can see <laughs> Stop this. Stop making sense. Yeah. Yes, it's that big. And yeah. um, I'm sort of relieved that I don't have to try to be her, (laughs) the girl from 1980. I think there was a period of time where I thought, oh, I've got to present her, this alter ego, even though it's all part and parcel of who I am. But I don't feel the need to um, traipse around. I I can't bear wearing high heels. I'll never, I don't believe in stilettos. No offense to people who love them, but how, how can your toes get squashed like that? Yeah. Yeah. For so long. Like, I don't understand. Like, that's torture to your feet. <laughs> and I think it looks really sexy and hot. But, like, really? Can you really walk around in those all day? I'm just have, having kind of a epiphany that at this phase of my life, I like to be comfortable. I find myself wearing pants at home. Of course, it's sweatpants. But um, my fashion sensibility has shifted a bit. I understand that when... Peter Philbin first came to see you play, he asked, and this was before you were signed, he asked one of the artists he was working with to join him, and that was Bruce Springsteen, who came to see you (laughs) at Magic Mountain in Valencia, California, and apparently he asked Bruce to sort of weigh in, should we or shouldn't we sign them, and Bruce gave you a thumbs up, and you got signed to Columbia Records in March of 83. Looking back on it now... Do you feel like this happened really fast for the band? You know, there were some bands that it happens right, not right away, but fairly soon, and others that take quite a long time. Wondering how you feel about the sort of kismet serendipity of it. Yeah, I love that question. The kismet of it was just incredible. But to be honest, it didn't feel fast. I mean, the fact was that Columbia was the only record label. I mean, an amazing record label. Simon and Garfunkel, Dylan, Springsteen. I mean, and wait, going back for generations, you know, I mean, it was a major label. So because we were do-it-yourself, because we are scrappy local band in LA, yes, part of this very cool Paisley underground scene that was so fun to be a part of, 
Yeah, and we had been on Faulty Products, which was Miles Copeland's smaller imprint. Then we were on IRS with the EP that Craig Leon produced. But we really didn't have any major label interest. So it was a huge deal when we met Peter Philbin, who had brought Bruce Springsteen to our show. I mean, schlepped him out to Magic Mountain from wherever he was living. It was quite momentous. Prince happened to come upon a video of the band singing Hero Takes a Fall, which is on your first album from Columbia, one of the tunes from all over the place. And he reached out to you. And at that point, another serendipity, you had first heard When Doves Cry. Yeah. And so at one of your Hollywood shows, you were told Prince had come to see you. What was that first meeting like? Oh, gosh. I can recall that we were in the dressing room at the Palace on um, Vine Street near Capitol Records. That was the venue, if I have the info remembered correctly. And we were in the dressing room and somebody in the crew mentioned it. And then we, we started to play our set. And he really did love this song, Hero Takes a Fall. But the record wasn't like, you know, on the charts exactly. It was, we were still quite underground. And I'm standing on the stage and I could still see came in from the wings already kind of shredding on, on the guitar. And he was playing this really beautiful guitar. And I never before or since witnessed the kind of genius, everything about him. I mean, it was like a, a supernatural event occurring on the stage, like him just playing this solo that was like channeling something <laughs> like the gods of some sort. Like it was just well, anyone who's seen his um, solo in While Mike Guitar Gently Weeps from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame performance with Tom Petty and many others on the stage. There will never be anyone like that ever again. I mean, it was and then to get the gift of Manic Monday, that was that changed so much for the Bengals. That was our first real AM, FM radio hit. And apparently he gave you that. He started performing Hero Takes a Fall at his shows and ultimately gave you a mixtape of songs that he'd written, which he thought would be perfect for the band. Well, really the one. There, there was two. There were Jealous two. Girl, yeah, right? there were Jealous two. Girl. There were two. Yeah, we, we hovered around the cassette player. You know, this was the 80s. Wasn't digital really yet. And uh, the minute I heard that song, the minute I heard that riff, I was like, Baroque pop, it's like what I loved growing up as a child, the sounds of the 60s, but modern. And also the first time I stood in front of that mic and I looked over and the red light was on recording and I sang it, I was like, oh, yes. You just know sometimes there's songs that I've wanted to sing in my life and I think this will be so per- this will be a perfect fit and then you try them on and they're not and you just have to accept that. But everything about Manic Monday was like slipping, putting my foot in the glass slipper. It just, I just went, oh my God. And I could tell David Kahn, our producer, was feeling the same feels, <laughs> you know, in that moment. Prince asked for the pseudonym Christopher to be used on the album credits. Why Christopher? And why, why a pseudonym? I don't know. My feeling about it was knowing him. He championed artists. He championed all kinds of artists, including many, many female artists. And, you know, I think he wanted it to be about the Bengals. 
If he had put Prince on there, the initial story would be different. Mm. He wanted us to claim it, I think, and make it, obviously make it our own. He offered to send us the backing tracks. But we, as Bangles, it was our, it was kind of our feeling that, you know, we wanted to banglefy it, you know, to start yeah. from track it ourselves and, and add all the guitars and do our own, our own spin on it, you know. But um, I just thought it was a generous act. That's how I think of it. Well, the album, Different Light, was one of the biggest hits of the 1980s. It spawned several more hits, including the song Walk Like an Egyptian, which was actually ranked Billboard's number one song of 1987. Um, But I understand that the band was divided about whether it would be a failure or a success. Oh, Walk Um, Like an Egyptian? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah. I was sitting in David Kahn's office at Columbia Records just talking to him about songs and what might or might not go on the album because he and I had a quite close relationship. And he played me this demo tape of it, a wonderful singer named Marty Jones. It was her version that I heard, and it had this groovy bossa nova feel to it, the Marty Jones version. And um, I love Bossa Nova because, it again, it's that 60s thing. It's very swinging 60s. The Bossa Nova was really popular then. And even, like, The Look of Love, which is a Burt Bacharach song, it mm. has a sort of feeling like that. So, yeah, I mean, even though it's nothing like Waka Like, an Egyptian, which was kind of obviously kind of a quirky song. But I got to know Liam Sternberg, who wrote it. It was very close with Chrissy Hine and came from Akron as well. And we had been on a ferry or something in Europe and everyone was kind of on the boat going as it was going through this rocky surf. And somehow that spawned the lyrics to that song. But it was an afterthought to release Walk Like an Egyptian as the third single. And who would have thunk that the kids would call their local radio stations? And boom, as you said, we couldn't believe that it was number one and ended up being the biggest song that year. This also happened with the song you wrote for the band's third album, Everything, um, Eternal Flame, which is now arguably one of your biggest and most enduring songs. It was initially voted off the album. Why? How did people not recognize that it was what it was? I don't know. For some reason, I mean, I was so proud of it. And speaking of Bruce Springsteen, went walking around with the cassette of Nat, Nebraska, his Nebraska album, that at least that's the lore. I walked around. I never left my house without the cassette of the demo that I made with Billy and Tom of Eternal Flame because I was... I, I The minute we wrote that bridge part, the sun shines through the rain part, I was like, oh my God, I love... I was so excited about this song and I was playing it for my Art of the Bengals attorney and anybody that would listen. But when it came time to actually do the band meeting, which was always a little bit tense, obviously, because everybody was like, here's the song. At that point, we were all writing mostly with others because we were just thrown together for like near a decade. At that point, it was many years in a van. Like we needed a little bit like autonomy from each other. I guess that's why we all sort of split off and wrote with other friends. But I don't know why. We just had this, everybody got equal amount of songs on the record. It had become kind of kind of oppressive, honestly. There was a little bit of a, you know, road-weary, you know, it's hard to make 
art by committee. It just is, you know? So that's the, that's why bands generally last for a discrete amount of time because they're so amazing when it's happening and all the energy's there, but it, it, it can become, you know, wearying after a while. So anyway, I, I thought it was a shoe in but the other girls didn't pick it or, you know, but then David Seegerson, who was so great to work with, such a wonderful creative producer and such a big hearted guy. And we're, I'm friends with both David Kahn and, and David to this day. Sort of partway through the recording of the record, he's like, Sue, you know, I keep thinking about Eternal Flame. I have this idea for it, like a little, I, he knew I was obsessed with Patsy Cline. Maybe Sweet Dreams came out around that time, the Jessica Lange biopic of mm, it. Yeah, yeah, but, it, but probably a little bit. Yeah, right around that time. It might have, yeah. And so he said, I'm picturing this little music box, like a little, which it, it was like a little music box thing. And I have this idea. And so we went out uh, to the Valley to work with Phil Chanel, who was a keyboard player, because there wasn't really a keyboard player in the Bangles. We, it was two guitars, bass, and drums was the setup. And we crafted a little arrangement for it, and that's what it became. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present, but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. You've said that bands are like marriages, but it's not just two people in the marriage. It's all the people in the band in a marriage. And some of the best music has been created with that tension. I'm thinking of Fleetwood Mac or the Beatles or the Birds or the Beach Boys. How important was a certain amount of friction or debate to the band? Or was that tension what ultimately caused the band to break up that first time? I think... Tension is inevitable, just like it is within families when they squabble about small things, but also bigger things, you know? Yeah, I think that we were pretty good at working through our differences. We were extremely respectful of one another, and I'm so grateful for that. You know, like my partners in the band were are were and are fantastic human beings who I admire, but I think... The tensions of being on the road, I think there were little factions that evolved. I think we grew weary. I think there were pressures in the band. I think Eternal Flame, which may not have been favored by the other members, and I'm not even saying that's the true or not, but I think that song took off unexpectedly and perhaps they feared that it would cement the idea that I was the lead singer of the band, even though, you know, it was a band like Fleetwood Mac where there's multiple singers. Yeah, I think it's just a difficult marriage to sustain over a a very long period of time. 
10 years after you broke up, the band got back together and you've released three albums since. Yeah. Um, as a solo artist, you've recorded five albums, two EPs. You performed as a duo with Matthew Sweet, recording three stunning albums under the under the covers moniker. You also starred in all the Austin Powers movies <laughs> as a singer in the band Ming T. You've also raised a family and as we've hinted at, talked uh, just a little bit about, um, written your first novel. Um, But before we talk about the book, I want to just ask you a few questions about your solo career and about your collaborations with Matthew Sweet. Sure. Your first solo album was released in 1991 and was titled When You're a Boy, which is a lyric from the David Bowie song Boys Keep Swinging from the 1979 album Lodger. Why that title for your album? Um, I can't remember the exact impetus for it. I was reflecting on that recently because that was recorded a very long time ago. And I was thinking that, you know, it's like when you're a boy, you can do anything, you know? And I was thinking that a lot about the experience of being a woman in this world and how... (laughs) complicated it is um, and how we still have to fight for things that I would have thought by now (laughs) would not be the case Um, and how the experience in life and my own personal journey to get to where I am now at 64 as a woman, the challenges and all the glorious things about it. So I think that it was just a little bit like food for thought to to put out an album with that title. And obviously, I love David Bowie. So it was fun to honor his song. Susanna, let's talk about your brand new book, the novel This Bird Has Flown. Writing is such a solitary act, but I read that you found an unexpected sense of freedom sitting alone in your room writing for hours at a time. Given how much you've collaborated musically, was it hard to adjust to working entirely by yourself? I thought it would be. It was unexpectedly not an issue at all. And I don't know why writing a novel would be that different from writing a song, although there's a lot of things that songs, you know, typically have rhyming schemes and certain meters, and then it's the melody part of it, too, For me, I always gravitated to the melodies. And weirdly, now that I've written thousands of words on a page, I feel like maybe, maybe this bird has flown will um, be an opportunity to be less fearful about the lyric part of it. Because um, I found that in the writing, I would do inner rhymes and I would use alliteration. And I, there was a lyric quality to what I was sort of doing from time to time. And I'd be like, okay, I'm doing that thing. But okay, I'm going to go with that as the style of of the prose. And it was so fun to do that. So I think now, finally, I could tackle, you know, the solo writing venture and or I could, again, hook up with my beloved writing compadres and, and see what we come up with. You were able to create a lot of suspense in telling this story, and you do it really well. I started reading it in an evening, and 
ended up staying up way past my bedtime because I was so engaged in the story and wanted to know what was going to happen. Um, I was almost tempted to read the end before I was even halfway through because I was like, how does this turn out? I have to know. Did you take classes or lessons to learn how to build suspense in that way? I didn't. I no? didn't. I, I've just self-taught again. I've studied. I Every night I watch something. As either an old movie on the Criterion Collection, I rewatch movies, and I just read a lot. So I think that, and I'm married to a filmmaker who's a great storyteller. There was a few times where I, you know, he hasn't even read this draft. It's meant, you know, it's been a while since he looked the book over. But every once in a while, I'd say, you know, I just, I want to work on Jane's predicament. I, I want to keep people guessing. And, you know, I'd have a conversation with him. I also, once Little Brown bought the book, you know, the draft, and then we went on, I went on to have an editor. I had wonderful readers. Let me put it this way. I had wonderful readers along the way. My agent, Sarah Burns, who edited the book, The Lovely Bones, came from editing, had good ideas. My best friend, Margaret Stoll, who's the one who encouraged me to stop hiding my draft, this behemoth draft. And she actually said, send it to Sarah Burns because Sarah's her literary agent. And she was right because Sarah read it, read it over the weekend and said, let's meet. And so I flew to New York and met with her. And you wore a suit for that meeting, I believe. I did. I Why? did. <laughs> You're well, a rock and roller. <laughs> I, I was channeling like the idea of being in New York City being a novelist, I guess. And I just wanted to feel presentable. And it was like, you know, you can walk through the streets of Manhattan and you can see why they can film movies that are set in the 50s if you find the right block to walk on. And I knew I had to walk from Midtown to the Upper East Side, not the not too far up in the Upper, upper East Side, but I had to cross from the West Side to the East Side. And it was like, I was sort of teary-eyed. It was a freezing day. I didn't want to show up in jeans and a T-shirt, you know. I don't know. It was very it, meaningful to me. And I, it felt like the literary world was not the scrappy world of, like, Hollywood rehearsal studios where you show up, you know, and whatever. Like, I wanted to, like, dress for the occasion because, to me, if for no one else, it was so momentous. It was ultra-momentous. It was like, I'm here. I did this thing. A literary agent read it and wants to talk to me. I don't know. It was so emotional. It was one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had in my whole life. Wow. Yeah. So you wrote the entire book without even knowing if you were going to get a book deal. Yeah. I mean, if I could give myself one gift in my 50s, it was taking the plunge and doing this lifelong dream and just teaching myself how to do it by reading and having been a lifelong reader and studying films and stories, again, in all formats. It, it was so unexpectedly fun. I mean, like, it is such hard work. It is hours and hours and hours of work, but I never tire of it. And your son, I understand, kept urging you to write this by telling you, if not now, when? Yeah. And I, I love that. Yeah. I, I say that all the time to myself now. Good. Little Brown has described your book as one for lovers of Daisy Jones and the Six and inspired by favorites like Jane Eyre and Bridget Jones's Diary. That's quite a range, and I was wondering if you agree with that description. 
I think it's actually a marvelous description. I met, I became friends with Helen Fielding several years back. And um, I was, I read, I had read all her books beyond the Bridget series. Like at one point, maybe I had access to ones that I didn't know about when our friendship blossomed. And I just had lunch with Taylor Jenkins Reid, which was so thrilling. Talk about a great work ethic. I mean, she's written so many books. Like, this is a passion. Yes. But I, lo- I love, again, the subgenre of, of books. Well, I love female protagonists. So Helen, you know, is so masterful with, the, with, with books, even when they were not the Bridget series, but other female protagonists. And Jane Eyre was a seminal work that I've revisited starting from adolescence, I would say, through my 60s. There's something about the fierceness of that character. She doesn't come from wealth. She's basically like an orphan. I don't know. There's just something in the fierceness of her convictions and and also her integrity as a character, I just find her endlessly inspiring and relatable, um, even if we <laughs> live in different time periods. And it's just such a marvelous book. I, I feel the same way about that book. I still remember being 12 or 13 years old and picking it up in a doctor's office, of all things, wow. and and just being completely and utterly riveted. Just yeah. riveted. Yeah. And and seeing her and Mr. Rochester speak over the ocean. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah. Is Jane, your character in the book, Jane Start, named after Jane Eyre? I did. I did grab the Jane from Jane Eyre. I like <laughs> how it's such a simple name. It sounds so beautiful to say Jane. That's the weird thing. Like, I didn't sit around with, I didn't have a page with like 10 names written on it. There was this just instinctive firing different pistons and just different synapses all reacting. I just kind of, it just kind of kept happening. It was like playful in my mind. There's quite a lot of flirtatious literary banter in the book, um, which is an old English major I quite liked. Yeah. The other main character, Tom Hardy, is not named after the actor. He's actually named after the author of what I believe is your favorite novel, Tess of the Gerbervilles. Yeah. Um, One of my favorites. One of your favorites. So the man who wrote that was named Thomas Hardy. Yeah. You've said that you were drawn to several themes that informed this story. Um, They include these questions. Will the ghosts of relationships past threaten our chances of finding true love and happiness? And will our own personal demons doom us from succeeding in our work? And I'm wondering, Susanna, why those particular questions? In my life, it took many relationships to realize when I met Jay that that was the right partner (laughs) for me. But if you've ever experienced a relationship that's gone south or didn't work in a kind of way that eroded your sense of who you are. Oh, yes. Many times. Right. And so you, you start to lose your confidence. You think, will I ever connect with another human being? The wounds that are left behind that they, they, they may scab over, but they're visible. You know, they stay there for a long time. Um, and also to just be f- among my friend group, you know, to, to hear other people's stories 
and how to watch them suffer through bad breakups and wonder, will I ever find somebody, you know, who understands me and I understand them and I can feel confident that they will not hurt me. I understand that the book has already been optioned for a movie. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, will you be in it at all? <gasps> oh, I don't know. I don't, I mean, maybe a cameo. That's the first, I've never thought about that yet. Perhaps <laughs> okay. a cameo. <laughs> That's the answer. And any, anyone you hope will play Jane Stark? Um, I don't know yet. I, I, okay. I, that will be so fun to see down the line. And then my last question, have you started working on a second book or a sequel? I'd kind of love to know how the relationship between our main characters evolves. Well, I'm, I'm right there with you. I am just, I have been uh, collecting ideas and I have a whole file of them on my computer and to be continued. And I would love to talk to you about it as, as I get closer to figuring those, the answers to those questions. Wonderful. Susanna Hobbs, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Oh, it was such a pleasure. Susanna Hoff's novel is called This Bird Has Flown, and her latest album is titled Deep End. You can read a lot more about all of her work on her website, SusannaHoffs.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.